My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. And I remember, you know, her calling me, son, I'm sleeping better at night, my anxiety's gone, and, and this shop will just tick away, and I can now help my daughter. I don't have to ask her for money. So an amazing turnaround there. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset, and strategies. I'm Torrin Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Philip King, the Sutherland Shire's own king of commercial real estate currently with a portfolio of over 50 commercial properties. He shares a wealth of stories ranging from his carefree childhood to his unexpected degree and answers the age-old generation debate, who has it harder? After a 33-year career at IBM Australia, King tried retirement on for size but found it didn't quite suit. However, while he was at IBM, he was harboring a passion who could turn to. I held several roles there, sales roles and ultimately sales management roles. Um, and during that time, I had a passion for property. Um, you know, I owe a lot of that to my uncle who was an accountant but first and foremost, he was a property investor. And uh, he taught me a lot and, and I think instilled an interest in commercial property. When I first retired, my, uh, my day to day used to be to get up, get dressed, go to golf. And I, I sort of thought that uh, I'd like to have a really good crack at being retired. Uh, and so I started playing golf uh, three to four days a week. But, uh, you know, after a couple of months, I realized that uh, you know, you really need to do things uh, within limits and that was too much golf. And ultimately, I got bored. Uh, and throughout my 30-year career at IBM, I was collecting and uh, purchasing commercial retail shops. Um, and I'm happy to, to delve into, the, you know, why I found that a superior asset class uh, to build wealth on. Um, so during my 30 years at IBM, I, I continued to buy commercial properties and I've managed to build up a portfolio now of, of uh, 53 commercial properties um, which uh, you know to prevent my children having a garage sale with my life when I passed Tyrone uh, and I knew they wouldn't sit and listen to me uh, for two hours or even an hour of podcast but uh, it was my hope that they would read the book that I wrote to teach them 
why I've, I've built up this portfolio of commercial properties. And if they keep them, how that they will be able to live off the, the income that they generate. And that hopefully, uh, if they understand the principles in the book, they'll be there for their grandchildren as well. So uh, I spent the, the last few years of my career, you know, when I was traveling overseas in, in and out of airports, uh, which seems a distant memory through COVID, but uh, I, I wrote, you know, chapters and, and pages whenever I got the chance. And eventually when I retired, I published uh, the book, which is simply titled Engines of Wealth, Commercial Retail Shops. Day-to-day -day life is much busier now than it was during the golf days, but that's just the way he likes it. I've got a database of about 350 real estate agents. I try and ring them every month just to ask them what they've got listed, what they've got line of sight that they're about to list and hopefully so that I can secure properties before they even go on the internet and on the market. Um, and once I've found those properties, you know, my job is really analysing that particular property. And I might analyse 15 properties to pick two or three properties that I really like. And that analyst uh, would entitle checking all of the outgoings. Often there's a lot of outgoings that aren't declared. Um, I've got a great article on the website. There's a, a website that you can go to, enginesofwealth.com. It talks about alarming omissions. Agents just like to say that, well, here are the outgoings, rates, water rates, council rates, insurance. And it's like magically no other outgoings exist. But as we know, there's often real estate administration charges, there's annual fire safety inspections, there's annual audits if you're charging outgoings, there's you must have an allowance for repairs and maintenance. So part of my job is to just make sure all the outgoings have been accurately declared and we do land on the on the correct net rent because that's what we're basing our valuation on that property. It's, it's based on a, a capitalised return on that net rent. So, so important. So a lot of my analysis work uh, is done on each and every property and that, that also entitled, um, involves me talking to the tenant and in my book, uh, pretty well everything that I've learned over the 30-year career investing in commercial property, I've captured in the book. But it's about all the questions that you want to ask the tenant. You know, have you reported anything to the landlord that hasn't been fixed? Does the roof leak when it rains? Um, do they have public liability insurance uh, themselves? Uh, you know, how's business? Are you making money? Is the rent killing you? Um, you know, and a lot of these tenants are more than happy to have a talk if you tell them that the building's for sale. I'm interested in purchasing it. Ultimately, I, I may become your landlord. A lot of them are happy to have that conversation with you. So the bulk of my day really is, and, you know, if I have time left at the end of the day, I spend it searching on the web, uh, but also then uh, interacting with clients. And it's about me understanding my client's budget, understanding my client's um, investment goals um, and what, what I typically say to a lot of my clients is you know I'm not really here to help people buy one commercial property I'm here to help my clients build a portfolio of commercial property that will generate a positively geared income that will fuel their retirement. He delves into his personal background which involves a degree you wouldn't expect and a reminder of just how far the mobile phone has come. I grew up in uh, Engadine, uh, which is the God's country, they call it, Tyrants, the Sutherland Shire. Uh, 
I uh, went to university in the University of New South Wales. Uh, I became a chemical engineer and realized after four years, uh, after graduating that I really didn't like chemistry. And I got a job in IBM, which was obviously computers. Uh, I felt fortunate to be uh, in IBM. It was a, a large global company. Uh, and I had the privilege of traveling uh, internationally for many, many years with, with the company. Um, so, you know, I got to see a lot, of, a lot of the world through my job and business. And I think I was also in an industry that just had amazing growth over that 30-year period. Um, you know, right now, when I first started, uh, you know, the, the computing power in, in your mobile phone wouldn't have fitted in an entire lounge room. I felt very special to be one of the first people uh, with a mobile phone. I carried it around with a car battery uh, to run. So, uh, you know, a very interesting career at, at IBM. Um, and as I said, I um, my uncle was an accountant uh, and they used to uh, go out a lot and I used to babysit uh, my, my nieces and nephews. And he would pick me up to drive me down to babysit and the following morning he'd, he'd drop me back home and... I got the privilege of being in the car with him for, you know, a half an hour down and a half an hour back every day. And we would just talk about properties. And so uh, that's really where um, I had a passion for property. Um, and my uncle John uh, just instilled that in me uh, and was has been there as a sounding board pretty well through every uh, property that I've purchased. Is, is Uncle John still still alive? Yes, he is, and he's uh, he's an accountant in Helensburg, and he still knocks out tax returns, uh, 84 years old. After his book was published, he found readers approaching him to thank him for writing something so accessible and understandable. And I was starting to receive a lot of requests to assist people uh, with, with their search for a quality commercial investment. Uh, so again, I asked my mentor, my uncle, my accountant, uh, what I needed to do to be able to help people with their search for a commercial property. Uh, and that entailed uh, actually getting a real estate license. Uh, and so after 33 years in the IT industry and uh, approaching retirement, I spent the four months in uh, studying real estate and attained my real estate license so that I'm, I now act as a buyer's agent, helping people uh, get property. Uh, and look, I'll be honest, at first I thought the hard part would be uh, finding clients and the difficult part would be finding, you know, um, the easy part would be finding investments. But it's been quite the opposite. I, I've had a, a lot of inquiries from clients uh, and, have, and have been able to secure uh, a lot of interested investors. Uh, and one of the difficulties has been actually finding good quality properties at, at healthy yields. And as you know, you know, we can talk about it a little bit later, but three years ago when I started, um, I've never really bought properties in Victoria because in Victoria, the yields and properties are, are being capitalised down there around the four, four and a half percent. And lately I've been seeing them. Uh, trade at 3% yields, which for me has just been too expensive. Uh, a lot of the properties that I own, that I started buying uh, years ago, and I'm talking 15 years ago, are uh, in Sydney, 
because I was able to buy properties around that, you know, six and a half, seven percent yield. Well, unfortunately, Sydney has now followed the path of Victoria and properties here in Sydney, you know, are trading around uh, that four, four and a half, five percent yields, um, very tight. So my search sort of took me to what I like to call the golden rectangle of Queensland, which is the Gold Coast, Brisbane, Sunshine Coast, because I'm, I'm able to, to still purchase properties and find really good investments up there, uh, you know, around the six, six and a half percent yield. And a few years ago, two years ago, I was buying them at, at seven, seven and a half, even eight percent yields. Um, and we do need to be careful. There'll be properties out there today that you can still buy at eight, eight and a half percent. But typically they'll be remote in, in remote regions or they could be in flood zones. There might be an underlying problem that, that we really need to be careful um, that we're not buying uh, potential problems. So, uh, you know, that's my caution. If you see a property at a, a high yield in today's market, there may be underlying issues that we have to investigate. In everything he does, he has his family at the forefront of his mind and his plans. And the most important thing about that is that we're actually building a legacy for your children because long after you go to God, this money won't stop. These properties will continue to generate this positively geared income. So you have the confidence and comfort of knowing that this income, that this, this portfolio you've created is a legacy for your wife and your children because that money will, will continue to roll in and fund and fuel their lives. So that's really uh, what I'm working with with a lot of my clients. And I, I have several clients that have bought five and six properties uh, through, through me already. King's siblings were shocked to find that he was writing a book as the idea just didn't mesh with the brother they grew up with. I went to Engadine Primary, I went to Engadine High uh, and I lived in Engadine with my parents till I was 24. I moved out around the corner and uh, rented a house with mates in Engadine uh, and I was into water skiing and sport and squash and uh, you know, furthest from my, my mind was studying and, and excelling in uh, any sort of academic endeavors. Uh, it was just purely sports focused. Um, and yeah, now my uh, my brothers and sisters can't believe that, that I was an author. But uh, look, the book isn't a love story. It, it is absolutely purely, uh, you know, the way to build wealth out of commercial property. Uh, and it explains the principles of why this is such a superior asset class. Um, yeah, but look, then I, uh, I moved to Como, uh, married uh, with my first, uh, I had a, a daughter to my first wife. Um, and look, a lot, you know, my investment career certainly had uh, two, two major phases when I grew up. Uh, I started buying residential property. Uh, and my theory then, uh, which a lot of people, I think, uh, agree and, and pursue is that you buy a residential property at the entry level of the market. Uh, I used to love it when I found a, a residential property with a granny flat because it had that dual income potential. And you knew that when the market lifted, the value of these entry level properties was going to rise. And it, and it didn't have the sponginess of, of the higher uh, properties. Coming up after the break, King reveals his thoughts on the debate of whether young people have it harder 
and my annual salary was 25,000. So when you hear our kids today say, oh, dad, we've got it harder than you. And everyone says, you know, a lot of us uh, older generation will say, no, you haven't. It was just as hard when we were young. A brief history of the PC, which may sound unfathomed to some. A PC had a hard drive. Uh, over there, they had these machines called 3380s and they were about the size of a refrigerator. He shares the conversation with a bank manager that changed everything. The bank manager rang me and said, Mr. King, we're not lending you any more money. We're too exposed to you now. You're so negatively geared that if all your tenants moved out, you wouldn't be able to afford to pay the loans. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Let's be real, deals that can yield 20 to 30% per annum do exist. Don't believe me? Well, here's a story about property development I invested in Victoria. This developer had the project fully funded beforehand but he and his family suffered a loss, a circumstance that led him to be unable to proceed with the development. So, I stepped in and in two weeks, we funded the shortfall allowing for the development to continue. Five months later, the development was refinanced and we received our funds back with interest. Yes, there are amazing opportunities in the property market like this one. So, do you want to get a better return with lower risk on your money? Then register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. King's very first residential property was a two-bedroom unit in Cronulla which he paid $105,000 for. And at the time, I had just graduated and and got a job working for IBM and my annual salary was $25,000. So when you hear our kids today say, oh, dad, we've got it harder than you. And everyone says, you know, a lot of us uh, older generation will say, no, you haven't. It was just as hard when we were young. Well, it absolutely wasn't. Um, You know, back then, the average wage was $25,000. I bought the unit for 104 times your average salary to buy a unit in Cronulla. Today, that very same unit sold a couple of months back for $850,000. Now, the, the average wage is only sort of $80,000, $90,000. So it's over 10 times more. So when our kids today say, Dad, we've got it harder, please, let's believe them. They absolutely have. You're the first to say that. Every every person I've interviewed said that the kids, you know, just don't understand it. <laughs> and the generation back then was just as hard. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I uh, I was published in an article in The Leader, and uh, which is the local Shire paper here. Um, and that article I wrote was called A Different Property Path. And back in, our, in my day, and, and I'm 56, uh, you know, we couldn't afford to just go straight out at, at, at an entry-level age when we just started working and buy a four-bedroom house. They were out of our reach. So we bought a, a commercial, uh, sorry, not a commercial property, we bought a, a residential two-bedroom unit. And that was our stepping stone to buy the unit first, which was affordable, help us pay it off, either stay living at home with your parents and rent it out so that you had a tenant helping you pay the mortgage and pay that loan down to the point where eventually after five or six years, you can sell that unit and then and then upgrade and buy a house. And, 
And the article I wrote for our young kids today to read was, was really a different property path, which meant there needed to be an extra step. And I think commercial property can provide young people that extra step because I've bought clients commercial properties um, for as little as $230,000. So it's a low barrier to entry. Young couples can afford that and they can use that commercial property uh, as a, a stepping stone to get to the unit and then get to a residential house. So, you know, that's what the article in, in you know, summary was about, was adding that extra step and how a commercial property uh, enabled them to get into the market, to get a tenant to actually start helping with, with them paying the mortgage and, and building their equity and getting the capital growth happening, you know, as they increase the rent each year, the value of that shop is going up in value that they can ultimately leverage against and get themselves to the next step being the unit. He explains how he got his job at IBM and lets us in on how the computers of the day worked as long as the weather held up. So we were about a, a two months out of uh, graduating in our fourth year at university uh, and I was sitting at the Roundhouse Cafe at, uh, on the, at the University of New South Wales and it, I was still there, yes, and and I and I used to work as a waiter in that roundhouse cafe for, for pocket money. Uh, over on the board, you you tore off. There was an IBM uh, interview uh, board, and they had tear off time slots. And I tore off a time slot, and I went to the interview uh, with IBM at the roundhouse cafe, and I got a second interview in at IBM, and eventually uh, they gave me a job. So I never spent one day as a as a chemical engineer. I I was straight into IBM and they taught me. I spent the next twelve months in IBM's uh, school at Rosebury, uh, where I learned how to fix machines. So I was literally running around with a tool bag, uh, and back then I was in um, what was called the, the mainframe uh, team, and I would fix I would fix uh, large CPU processes, which is, if you think about a, a PC, it's got a motherboard. Uh, when you're talking about the big machines that the like Westpacs and Combanks and NAB of the world ran, uh, that motherboard was a big CPU, central processing unit. And it was a big machine about the size of your bedroom. And I was trained to fix those. Uh, a PC had a hard drive. Uh, over there, they had these machines called 3380s and they were about the size of a refrigerator. And they were basically they were basically big discs spinning inside them, uh, which you know had accessible uh, heads that went out and read the data. Uh, so I would fix those machines, and then also the permanent storage of the day back 33 years ago were, were tape drives, and I used to fix the tape drives. So they you know data would be stored on what, what was called a direct access storage device, the hard drives, because that was accessible quickly. Uh, and then when it wasn't required and it needed to be archived, it, it would be written to tape. Uh, and then the tapes would be filed if they ever needed, you know, in the event of a disaster to reload that data. So I was trained by IBM in all those machines. And then I was given a pager, a mobile, one of the first mobile phones in Australia. Uh, and you'd be running around um, answering calls when clients rang up and said their machines failed. Uh, out you'd go and you'd fix those machines. And back in the day, uh, you know, when we had a, a lightning strike, uh, 
it was a busy it was a busy time because all the machine all the machines fell over all the computer all the motherboards would would seize now obviously today when lightning hits we you know the technology has advanced and it doesn't wipe the memory and wipe the disk like it did in the old days after a successful career at IBM king settled into family life i got married uh, i had my daughter and i guess like any father would you you're besotted by your daughter and your marriage and you know you want the best for your family and you you know i had a definite drive to create a bright future for my family um and i i meet a lot of clients and and that's their underlying drive of, of what they want to do now as you get a bit older it, it also becomes well I want a solid, reliable income stream so that I never have to work again ever, you know, through my retirement and when I get old. Uh, and what's happening, obviously, with COVID and uh, the fact that banks are offering super low interest rates is a lot of these retirees are now faced with that very problem, you know, of having to work again because the strategy they chose back then uh, was one of just put your money in ComBank in a term deposit. And that is no longer working for them. So I've got an article on my website called Older Times Are Changing. Uh, and it's about an 86-year-old uh, lady, uh, Val, Val Goodman, who for the very first time at, at, the, at the age of 86, pulled her term deposit out of the bank and bought a commercial shop, which is returning her 7%. It's a little pool shop in Kaluan on the Sunshine Coast. Um, and I remember, you know, her calling me, Son, I'm sleeping better at night, my anxiety's gone, and and this shop will just tick away, and I can now help my daughter. I don't have to ask her for money. So an amazing turnaround there. But look, for me personally, at the time when I you know had my daughter and, and was newly married, my strategy at the time was to build a portfolio of residential property. And look, it went really well, and... I dare say there's a lot of people that have been into residential property have done very, very well. Um, and predominantly they've done well because the property has risen and has had this capital growth. And when they look at their, at their investment performance, they're counting that capital growth. But as you know, you can't live on it unless you sell the property. And if you sell the property, you have to pay capital gains tax, which means that money's not working for you anymore. Uh, and then you've got the money and then what are you going to do with it? put it in the bank at 0.1%? No. And so a lot of people that choose to keep their residential properties, typically they're contributing because they bought them negatively geared. And over many, many years, they may become neutrally geared, but they're really not to the point where they're going to generate an income that's significant enough to live on. So that's the first problem. Um, but what I found is that as I purchased commercial uh, residential residential property um, the first property you buy you're negatively geared and you wait a couple of years and you buy another one um, you're leveraging the equity in the first one um, and then you buy another one and another one and eventually you be you, you start to spiral in when the bank was looking at him he became more and more negatively geared as he purchased more properties all was well until the day he tried to buy property number six. And the bank manager rang me and said, Mr. King, we're not lending you any more money. We're too exposed to you now. You're so negatively geared that if all your tenants moved out, you wouldn't be able to afford to pay the loans. 
And I remember screaming at the bank manager saying, what's the chances of six tenants all moving out? And the bank manager looked at me and said, well, it's actually higher than you think, Philip. Um, all the tenants are transient. They are renting because they don't own a home. They're all probably saving to go and buy a home themselves and they'll leave. They've all signed short six, 12 month leases. Some of them have gone month to month and they, a lot of tenants like after their six month or 12 month period, a lot of residential tenants, you know, demand just to, can, can I go month to month because they don't know what they're doing uh, or they get a job elsewhere and they terminate the lease. Uh, so typically that was the bank's position. And if you compare that to commercial property, when you buy your first commercial property, we're buying it on a mathematical formula that will see a six and a half percent cash flow return. Um, so, you know, you, when you buy your one commercial property, you're positively geared. You buy a second, you're double positively geared, and suddenly you've got three times cash flow, four times cash flow. And as you keep buying commercial property, so in residential, when I got to six residential properties, uh, the bank stopped me borrowing any more money. Uh, and that's that's when things changed, is that right, to decide, okay, this was your turning point to do something different? Well, the truth be known, Tyrone, I got to, what happens to some people is you get divorced. And I, I, I thoroughly uh, don't recommend that for anybody. But if it happens, it gave me an opportunity because the judge said, Mr. King, you have to sell those properties and give half to your ex-wife. And I have to, you shake yourself off, dust yourself off. And you get to reset where you're going on the second time. And this time I'd had that experience. And so this time I started my new life with my second wife, who I've been with for 20 years, um, purchasing positively geared commercial properties. So this time when I got to my sixth commercial property and I went to the bank and asked, can I have a seventh? The bank manager said, yes. And you could, so... What you're doing is I call I call it you're now riding the outward spiral where your cash flow is growing every time you collect a property in commercial it it's growing your cash flow and what do the banks love cash so the banks love this positive cash flow income so you're I was able to continue to grow that portfolio out to where it is today 53 properties as you collect them you be, you're spiraling in you're becoming more and more negatively geared to the point where the bank says stop. And then in the book, we talk about the outward spiral uh, where you're buying commercial properties and you start spiraling out to where the bank says keep going and they enable you to keep going. Um, and look, right now, I've only just finished a meeting this morning with my bank manager. You know, I'm looking at buying another commercial property. As for his first residential property, he ended up renting his two-bedroom Cronulla unit to a very well-known Sutherland Shire organisation. I rented it out to Cronulla Leagues Club um, and they had a player, a football player come over from England that was uh, playing for us for the season uh, and they rented it off me for 12 months um, and I rented that unit uh, for about three years uh, before moving into it. It was absolutely fantastic. I mean... To own property, I mean, even when I remember receiving the contract and it was an inch thick and I remember sitting there and, and I wanted to try and read the whole thing and, you know, I, I did give up after probably halfway through and thought, I need a lawyer to do this. This isn't me. But I was just, you know, genuinely wrapped to own 
my own property to know to know that I had uh, somewhere to, that I could stay and that um, you know I wasn't reliant on my parents anymore um, but also the fact that I was renting it out um, and because I, I, re- I bought the property fully furnished it was a, a divorce uh, and the couple sold it to me uh, there was they wanted I wanted to offer them a hundred we agreed on 105 but they leave the furniture so I was able to rent it to Cronulla Leagues Club fully furnished for a football player to come in so I, I was getting a premium rent to what other two-bedroom units were were achieving um, so I was stoked that I had um, my my wage so I, I was paying my savings off the loan from my IBM job so I was still living at home uh, uh, any money that I could save, I was paying off the loan. I was uh, paying the interest, and I was uh, on an interest-only loan. Um, and any money that that was left over from the tenant, I was paying off the loan uh, by choice as well. And the value of the property was increasing every year, uh, you know, as properties do. Uh, or, or I, anyway, you know, I love that expression on the uh, superannuation ads. Uh, past performance is no guarantee of future performance. So there's no guarantees properties uh, aren't going to take, uh, residential properties aren't going to cool, flatten, or even go down. I mean, as we know, they've gone up, I've heard, 30% this year, uh, which is an enormous increase. Um, so, you know, there's every chance that, uh, that, that property prices could flatten. Um, so look, you know what? What was pleased me the most was that I now had an investment where I was building equity three ways: my savings, the tenants' positive income, and capital growth happening. And I knew I just had to keep that property for a couple of years, then I could borrow against that equity that I'd built and and go and buy the next property. Coming down to the first commercial property, because after, as you mentioned, uh, you got divorced and then you know you had a clean slate to start again. Why did you decide to go into commercial property instead of going back into residential? How did you determine that factor or that change? That's a good question, and and one of the questions you sent me through, Tyrone, was uh, maybe you could tell us about your worst moment in your investing life. This is a big reason. So. For any for any uh, residential landlord, it's the fact that you you know you have your tenants stop paying the rent, and and that can be a nightmare because look you can take them to court and you need to get the, uh, you know the judge to evict them, and let me tell you the, the courts don't want to see young families and children evicted onto the street, so it's not that easy. You, and and in, a judge and has in the past said. Well, no, uh, I'm confident the tenant, you know, has had some misfortune. They've lost their job. He's been retrenched. Uh, there's a confidence level there that I have that he'll get work. Uh, you can give him six weeks to get a new job and, and start paying rent again and, and work out a plan to catch up. And whether you as the landlord say, no, no, I'm done with this tenant. I want him out. No. <laughs> like, so, you know, tenant issues can be bad and, and I had pretty well one of the worst experiences with a tenant where they stopped paying the rent. Uh, I started legal action to you know have them evicted 
And in the end, I got a phone call from one of the neighbours that said, oh, do you know your tenant's moving out? And it was the middle of the night. And I went over there in the morning and the state of the property was indeed uh, not what I had hoped for. It was terrible. You may think dogs make the biggest messes, but there's one pet you haven't thought of yet that can easily outdo them. The individual tenant had owned a pet python, a snake which you don't see very often. But the unique problem with that is that it, it, it excretes an oil out of its skin which left a black film on the carpet. So I was up for new carpet, I was up for four and a half thousand of new carpet. They were heavy smokers and so the roofs and the gyprock ceilings were staying grey. I needed to take two weeks off work, I needed to paint the property. I, the grill and the ovens hadn't been cleaned for the year, the two years they were there. And I pretty well just went down to uh, Seconds World and bought a new oven and, and put a new oven in there. Um, the gardens and the lawns were overgrown and had never been done. And, um, and this is something that I, I, I talk to my clients about. It's, it happens. It absolutely happens. So I was left to take two weeks off work, go in there, paint the property, replace the carpet, do all the running around to get tradesmen to fix things and um, ultimately spend about $8,000 to get that property back up to a lettable state so that I could get a new tenant in there. Now, do you want to be doing that in retirement when you're old and you're, you're living on the money that's being generated from your investment portfolio? If you've got a portfolio of residential properties and this is a regular occurrence and you've got to continually get Rakowsian uh, tenants out and fix properties back up because it's not their property. They don't want to spend their money on it. And let's compare that to a retail shop. When you're buying a retail shop, effectively you're buying three Besser brick concrete walls, a concrete floor, a glass shop front. There is nothing really in there that you own. Everything in there is the tenant's fit out. So they spend their own money on the fit out. Some some tenants uh, spend a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars on the fit out for their shop because they want their clients to have a beautiful shopping experience. Uh, and in addition to that, you know, the only things can go wrong is two things: the air conditioner, and you know what, uh, to to cool an eighty square meter, hundred square meter concrete box, you only need you know, a, a five, six kilowatt unit, they cost about five grand and they last 10 years. It's, and you can write them off on the government's instant asset write-off uh, in, in the first year. So it's not a big expense. Um, it's not going to break the bank. And the only other thing can go wrong is the hot water service. And they're even cheaper. They're like $1,000 and they last 10 years if you get a good run. Actually, I had a shop that I just pulled the hot water service out at Yarrawarra Shopping Centre. Um, and I said to the plumber, is it worth fixing? He said, have a guess how old it is. I said, I've no idea. 32 years. So <laughs> I think that's a record. So I had one hot water service last for 32 years. Now, I don't say they don't make them like that anymore, but I think you'll get 10 years out of the hot water service.
Philip King's story continues in the next episode of Property Investory. He shares the extraordinary story of his favorite tenant of all time. I went up there, literally my jaw dropped and hit the ground and I said, oh my God, I own this. I own this building. Wow. How wealth management is all about playing the game. If you really want to be wealthy in life, you know, who do you ask? Um, and there's an analogy that I heard that, that said, let's treat life as like a game of football. He gives insight into how he came up with a title for his book, Engines of Wealth. I was sitting uh, in, in Vietnam in a place called Nha Trang, uh, which has a big dragon going over the bridge and every half hour the thing, uh, it, you know, shoots fire out of its mouth. And I sat there with a bottle of uh, bourbon and started writing out potential names for the book. And that's next time on Property Investory. If you love the show, perhaps you're now ready to invest your money in a low-risk, high-return deal. If you are, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a lender. There are amazing opportunities in the property market right now and I'm looking for lenders who want to invest their money for as short as 6 months. What are you waiting for? Don't let your money just sit in the bank. To register your interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.